This is Scott Saul, and you're listening to Chapter and Verse, the books and arts podcast from UC Berkeley that delves into the fiction, art, films, and music that grip our cultural imagination. Today, we'll be hearing and exploring two short stories by Clarice Lispector, the Brazilian writer whom novelist Colm Toibin has described as one of the hidden geniuses of the 20th century, utterly original and brilliant, haunting and disturbing. Que mistério tem Clarice? Que mistério tem Clarice? Pra guardar-se assim tão firme no coração. Que mistério tem Clarice? What mystery does Clarice hold? Mystery is the word most often invoked around discussions of Clarice Lispector's writing the mystery of how it hits us so powerfully, and the mystery of how it came to be written by this particular Brazilian Jewish woman who was by turns a law student, a glamorous journalist, a diplomat's wife, a mother of sons, and by the 1970s, perhaps the most treasured writer in Brazil's literary firmament. Clarice Lispector herself once wrote, I am so mysterious that I don't even understand myself. At times she seemed to take pride in this air of mystery, to revel in it. After she visited the Sphinx on a sightseeing tour of Egypt, she remarked, I did not decipher her, but neither did she decipher me. Today we're thrilled to have Katrina Dodson, the translator of Clarice Lispector's complete stories, with us to explore Clarice Lispector's storytelling imagination. Dodson's translation of Lispector's stories, part of a larger project by New Directions to translate Lispector in a new key, has sparked something of a Lispector renaissance among American readers. In the New York Times, reviewer Terence Rafferty judged that this was a dangerous book to read quickly or casually because it's so consistently delirious, sentence by sentence, page by page. So let's plunge into the delirium with Katrina Dodson as our guide into it. Dodson recently completed her PhD in comparative literature at UC Berkeley and spent over two years immersed in translating Lee Spector's stories. And I can vouch that her translation is really quite remarkable, so sensitive uh, to the twists and turns of Clarice Lispector's prose. So Katrina, welcome to Chapter and Verse. Thank you for having me, Scott. Well, let's first I, I'd be curious to hear how you were drawn into this project of translating Clarice Lispector's short stories. Um, well, I was in Brazil living in Rio de Janeiro on a Fulbright um, fellowship in from 2011 to 2012, and I met Clarice Lispector's biographer in English, Benjamin Moser, um, while he was visiting Rio. And he is also the series editor of this um, new wave of translations by New Directions. And, you know, fast forward to 2013, and we had kept in touch, and the original person who they had uh, contracted to do the stories dropped out. And Ben thought of me and he said, you know, how would you like to translate the complete stories? You know, what are you doing? Just like sitting there knitting in a corner? <laughs> so, well, it was I'm very working serendipitous <laughs> to us that other person dropped out because you did a wonderful job. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, this is my first book length um, translation. And I knew I had the skills to do it. I know her work so well. You know, I've been reading her in Portuguese uh, since 2003. And so, um, and the stories are my favorite. Those, These were the ones that I really wanted to do. Um, but I... You know, I was really anxious in the beginning about um, taking on such a big, high-stakes project. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it was my dream project. So I just, I threw my dissertation to the side, <laughs> threw everything to the side and just dedicated myself to this. Maybe you could give our listeners some background about why um, Benjamin Moser and New Directions felt there was a reason to retranslate all of her works. Um, well, Benjamin Moser is a very convincing person, <laughs> and he has really spearheaded this, you know, what you called a Le Spectre renaissance, um, because he touched off this renewed interest in her in the English-speaking world with the biography. And so because that did so well, New Directions decided to reissue the old translation of The Hour of the Star um, with Giovanni Pontiera. And Ben said, no, you can't do this. It's awful. There's so many, um, not only mistakes, but just the way that he translated her um, just really smooths over her writing. Translators are always careful not to look at previous translations too soon because you want to really get your own voice. But I think it's a great tool to have another perspective on what you've done. So seeing his translations, um, I've seen, you know, he just completely ignores her paragraph breaks, um, her punctuation, which is so crucial to her. She has commas all over the place, you know, colons, these these things that really slow down your reading and kind of disorient you, but that I think are so key to her effect. Um, these repetitions, a lot of these things were just completely um, erased in the previous translations of a lot of these um, novels and short story collections that he did and so, and that other previous translators have done as well. And so, you know, Ben Moser was very convincing in um, getting new directions to commit to this series of new translations. And I really do think that this new approach, um, you know, with that Ben has undertaken as the editor, plus uh, there are four other translators besides myself who have done the novels. I think the goal in all of our work has been to restore her idiosyncrasy and really respect her choices. It's quite remarkable to have a, a, a group of five people, perhaps more other people brought in, yeah. uh, all working together with a common vision that, you know, with respect to the goal is not to sand down the rough edges or, you know, make the tone down the eccentricity so that she's easier to imp- export to an American audience. But really, no, let's let's get her straight in mm-hmm. the way that the Brazilian readers, the Portuguese readers see her and, and feel those kind of jarring moments and, and get slowed down by the weird commas and so mm-hmm. on. Yeah, and she's almost more difficult to read um, the better your Portuguese is. Because if, say, you know, a lot of people, especially here, um, come to Portuguese through Spanish and... Um, you know, if you're starting out and you read her, you think, oh, she's not that strange. It's not. And even me reading her for years in Portuguese, um, I never realized how truly and subtly strange she is until I had to translate her. And I had to go through it word by word and say, wait a second, um, this isn't a word, I don't think. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then, you know, to have to ask a lot of Brazilians, does this sound strange to you? And Often, more, more often than not, they'd say, oh, yeah, this is, I don't know. I didn't realize it at first, but now that I have to explain it to you, I realize that this doesn't make sense. Like like the word devagar um, in Imitation of the Rose, um, there's a woman who is, um, you know, she's extremely obsessive, um, kind of a perfectionist, and her doctor has prescribed like these kind of, that she drink her milk every day. You know, to gain weight and kind of, you know, she's, she's, she's recovering from a kind of mental breakdown. And there's a scene in which she's by the refrigerator and she drinks her milk 
And I translated something like like with a slowing because it's um, the word is un devagar, but mm-hmm. devagar means slow or slowly. Mm-hmm. It's an adjective mm-hmm. or adverb, mm-hmm. and she uses it as a noun. Like, mm. so I didn't, you know, I said like a slow down, a slow, and so a slowing seemed to be a similar thing where it doesn't it's, quite exist, but there's something about it that still flows. It's not completely grammatically incorrect, but it captures this odd kind of kink. It just kind of, right, yeah. kind of like yeah. sets you at a tilt. And so I think that was the um, the hardest thing about translating her was to get these odd moments where, you know, you're going along in standard Portuguese and all of a sudden one word is different or something just kind of throws you off. Mm-hmm. You're not prepared for it. Well, maybe we should go into listening to uh, one of her stories so people have a sense of Clarice's vision. I thought we would start with um, a chicken. And is there anything you think our listeners should know about Clarice Lispector um, before they hear it? This is published in 1952 originally, right? Right. In um, an earlier version, Alguns Contos. You know, she's one of Brazil's greatest writers, but she was born in the Ukraine in 1920. Um, to a Jewish family who escaped the pogroms and, you know, kind of a great period of unrest um, and persecution. And they had family in the U.S. and in Brazil. And her father wrote to both of them, and the family in Brazil answered. So it's interesting to think about how she could have ended up writing in English, mm. <laughs> what we could have had. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, I th- her it's beautiful to read her in Portuguese. Um, and so they came to Brazil in 1922, and so, you know, before she was even two years old. So she really grew up with um, being a native speaker of Portuguese. Um, and I believe that they spoke, there was some Yiddish spoken in the household. And so they they settled in Recife in the northeast um, of Brazil and then moved to Rio de Janeiro um, when... You know, she was in her teens, and her mother passed away when she was only nine. So, and Benjamin Mosner's um, biography really uncovers some remarkable details about that, where uh, her, the mother had contracted syphilis when she was raped by Cossacks, right, by right? Russian soldiers, right. But the, so she died from the syphilis, and, and the reason I bring it up is because it seems like figures of mothers are so important. I mean, Clarissa became a mother too, yeah. But it's also that it seems like, according to Benjamin Moser, she was kind of haunted by that loss and by her mother's suffering. So her mother was paralyzed um, or, you know, basic, I mean, just, you know, really not not really functioning in, in a normal way during her childhood. And um, yeah, but so many of these stories are about women's lives um, and these kind of, you know, archetypal uh, female roles like mother, wife, daughter. Um, and so her mother passed away when she was nine and after that the family moved down to Rio de Janeiro and um, you know in her later life um, Lispector she kind of turned away from um, kind of intellectual and academic gestures and so um, you know she stopped referencing uh, people like Spinoza or, you know even in her early work there's references to Hegel and so a lot of people even Elizabeth Bishop um, think of her as you know a writer who never cracked a book or she just kind of reached deep inside her soul and pulled out these you know philosophical truths but um, in actuality she was one of the first women to graduate with a law degree in Brazil I mean there were only three women in her class um, so she was incredibly intelligent 
um, you know, her father, he he was an immigrant who had to give up a lot of his um, talent and intellectual training. You know, he sold, he was kind of like a, um, like merchant selling household goods here and there. And so, you know, it was a family that really believed in education. And so she went far, she had a law degree, then she became a journalist. Um, and also, you know, one of the few female journalists at a, at a major newspaper um, in Brazil. So, um, you know, she was on her way to being, um, you know, very impressive, to having a very impressive career. Part of the kind of intelligentsia of Brazil. And then she got married. Right. But actually, the year before she got married, mm. she published her first novel. 1943, she published Near to the Wild Heart. And she was only um, 22, and it caused a huge sensation. People didn't know who she was. Her name was very odd, Clarice Lispector. Doesn't sound Brazilian. People thought this is a pseudonym. It's a man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They always think it's a man when it's good. But, but, you know, I mean, it was was a huge sensation. Then the next year, she married a Brazilian diplomat, um, Mori Grigel Valenci. And soon after that, you know, she was kind of just um, on the way up, got married, and they went abroad. So they lived in Rome, um, in Bern, Switzerland, and in Washington, D.C. And so she was married um, through the 40s and 50s. And then in 1959, um, she decided she wanted to come back to Brazil. And in the meantime, you know, she had two sons and she was always writing. This is a point that Benjamin Moser makes in his introduction that um, she's one of, he says she's the only woman writer. He has a lot of qualifications, but he makes this bold claim that she is, um, you know, the only kind of Western woman writer like this who just wrote the whole way through, you know, from her late teens, like age of 19 through her death in 1977 at the age of 56. It was on the eve of her 57th birthday, but you know, she was never interrupted by marriage, by children, by, you know, other people. You have Virginia Woolf committed suicide, you know, other people, Sylvia Plath, um, you know, or drugs or, you know, just other life, life, you know, obstacles get in the way. But she really just wrote from beginning to end. Uh, well, let, let's hear from uh, uh, this short story called A Chicken. Um, and maybe you want to start by giving us uh, a few lines in Portuguese and then We'll hear your translation. Sure. Uh, so the Portuguese is uma galinha. Era uma galinha de domingo, ainda viva, porque não passava de nove horas de manhã. Parecia calma. Desde sábado, encolhera-se num canto da cozinha. Não olhava para ninguém, ninguém olhava para ela. Mesmo quando a escolheram, apalpando sua intimidade com indiferença, não souberam dizer se era gorda ou magra. Nunca se di- Adivinharia nela um anseio. A chicken. She was a Sunday chicken, still alive because it wasn't yet nine in the morning. She seemed calm. Since Saturday, she'd been huddling in a corner of the kitchen. She looked at no one. No one looked at her. Even when they selected her, feeling up her intimate parts indifferently, they couldn't tell whether she was fat or skinny. No one would ever guess she had a yearning. So it came as a surprise when they saw her flap her wings, made for brief flight, puff up her chest, and, in two or three bursts, reach the terrace railing. For a second she wavered, long enough for the cook to cry out, and soon was on the neighbor's terrace, from which, in another awkward flight, she reached a roof. There she stood like an out-of-place ornament, hesitating on one foot, then the other. 
The family was urgently summoned and in dismay saw their lunch by a chimney. The man of the house, recalling the dual need to engage sporadically in some kind of sport and to have lunch, gleefully donned a pair of swim trunks and decided to follow in the chicken's path. With cautious leaps, he reached the roof where she, hesitant and trembling, was urgently determining a further route. The chase intensified. From rooftop to rooftop, they covered more than a block. Ill-adapted to a wilder struggle for life, the chicken had to decide for herself which way to go, without any help from her race. The boy, however, was a dormant hunter, and inconsequential as the prey was, the rallying cry had sounded. Alone in the world, without father or mother, she ran, panting, mute, focused. At times, mid-escape, she'd flutter breathlessly on the eve of a roof, and while the boy went stumbling across other roofs, she'd have time to gather herself for a moment. And then she seemed so free, stupid, timid, and free. Not victorious as an escaping rooster would have been. What was it in her guts that made her a being? The chicken is a being. It's true, you couldn't count on her for anything. Even she didn't count on herself for anything, as the rooster believes in his comb. Her sole advantage was that there were so many chickens that whenever one died, another emerged that very instant, as alike as if it were the same. Finally, on one of her pauses to revel in her escape, the boy reached her. Amid cries and feathers, she was caught. Then carried triumphantly by one wing across the rooftops and placed on the kitchen floor with a certain violence. Still dizzy, she shook herself a little, clucking hoarsely and uncertainly. That's when it happened. Completely frantic, the chicken laid an egg. Surprised. Exhausted. Perhaps it was premature. But right after, born as she was from eternity, she looked like an old, experienced mother. She sat on the egg and stayed there, breathing, her eyes buttoning up and unbuttoning. Her heart, so small in a plate, made her feathers rise and fall, filling with warmth a thing that would never be more than an egg. The little girl was the only one nearby and watched everything in terror. Yet as soon as she managed to tear herself away, she pried herself off the floor and ran shouting, Mama, Mama, don't kill the chicken anymore. She laid an egg. She cares about us. Everyone ran back into the kitchen and wordlessly surrounded the youthful new mother. Warming her offspring, she was neither gentle nor standoffish, neither cheerful nor sad. She was nothing. She was a chicken. Which wouldn't suggest any special feeling. The father, the mother, and the daughter had been staring for quite some time without thinking anything in particular. No one had ever petted a chicken's head before. The father finally made up his mind somewhat abruptly. If you have this chicken killed, I'll never eat chicken again for the rest of my life. Me neither, vowed the girl ardently. The mother, tired, shrugged. Unconscious of the life she had been granted, the chicken began living with the family. The girl, coming home from school, would fling her binder down without missing a beat in her dash to the kitchen. Occasionally, the father would recall, and to think I made her run in that condition. The chicken had become queen of the house. Everyone except her knew it. She carried on between the kitchen and the back terrace, employing her twin talents, apathy and alarm. But whenever everyone in the house was quiet and seemed to have forgotten her, she would fill up with a little courage, vestiges of the great escape, and roam the tiled patio, her body following her head, pausing as if in a field, though her little head gave her away. 
vibratory and bobbing rapidly, the ancient fright of her species, long since turned mechanical. Every once in a while, though increasingly rarely, the chicken would again recall the figure she had cut against the air on the edge of the roof, about to proclaim herself. That's when she'd fill her lungs with the kitchen's sullied air, and, even if females were given to crowing, wouldn't crow but would feel much happier, though not even then would the expression change on her empty head. Fleeing, resting, giving birth or pecking corn, it was a chicken's head, the same one designed at the start of the centuries, until one day they killed her, ate her, and years went by. Maybe you could start by uh, explaining a bit um, why you translated the title as a chicken rather than a hen, as a few other translators had decided to do. Right. So you actually hit on one of um, my major interpretive choices (laughs) throughout this collection. Um, And um, there's this whole theme of chickens and eggs running throughout Clarice. You know, my rationale to Ben, my editor, he wanted a hen. And I said, it's got to be chicken. <laughs> and I had this whole bullet-pointed mm-hmm. list. But here's why. Um, I think one reason is that, um, you know, the chicken in Clarice is this source of kind of derision and commonness. Um, you know, they're kind of like, you know, she's stupid, timid, just, you know, nothing. She's just a chicken. And in the in the egg and the chicken, the egg is the ideal, this kind of miraculous thing. And even in this story, what saves the chicken's life is that she lays an egg. <laughs> Not that she's a chicken, right? Exactly. Right. And the family goes, oh, you know, you're more special than just lunch. But, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the chicken, like the chicken is food. It's just lunch. It's just this kind of, you know, like gets no respect. And, and I think there's a, there's a definite... Um, kind of connection between chickens, women, and animals also um, as the kind of uh, subordinate figure, you know, the figure that gets no respect that maybe, you know, she's she's not going to crow like a rooster, proclaim herself, but, you know, she might just like break out into this like heroic escape. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, you know, the, the, just the chicken just to me sounds less dignified than hen. And then, you know, when you think of lunch, like what you're going to eat, you eat chicken. Let me start by throwing out what um, Benjamin Moser in his biography talks about. I mean, he's a biographer, so he's going to look at stories with in terms of their relationship to her biography. And and he thinks about how, you know, uh, that these there's so many themes that refer to Clarice's life, like uh, the idea that this chicken doesn't have a father or mother and <laughs> mm-hmm. senses of Clarice being orphaned or their sense that there's a virtuoso performance and then that's followed by silence. That's the rhythm of her career. Um, he'll even draw a connection between the old fright of the species mm-hmm. to some kind of reference to kind of maybe the Jewishness of, of uh, Clarice. Um, I'm curious what you find compelling about that sort of interpretation or what you feel like it leaves out. Um... I tend to have a less a less directly biographical reading of her work than Ben does. And I think, I mean, I think naturally, you know, he's her biographer and he has, um, you know, he's following a line of, of thinking about her as a Jewish writer. You know, he, he calls her the most important Jewish writer since Kafka. And I think that's an important intervention to make because 
um, that's not as talked about. I mean, but she, I mean, she doesn't really reference Judaism very overtly in her work, but neither does Kafka, but they're both considered, you know, these important Jewish writers. But I think also, I mean, she's well, They're both very, writing about scenes of entrapment. At this hen, you know, this chicken, you know, it's question, and, can it survive the system? And and the logic of the world being actually, like, insane <laughs> or, you know, kind of illogical in a lot of ways or the irrational. Um, but, you know, she's also very Catholic. She's so Brazilian in, in, in certain ways. So there are a lot of Catholic re- references in her work. Um, but, you know, I think that's one angle to read her work in. Um, I'm definitely drawn into her work uh, most strongly through... Uh, thinking about her as a woman writer and her thinking about women's lives. And, I, you know, again, it's like that's, um, you know, as a woman, <laughs> that's where I get drawn into her work. Um, I mean, this is the trick with Clarice, you know, it can be like just about a chicken. She kind of like threatens that like meaning, a kind of symbolic meaning and also just a plain old literal meaning. And I think, you know, she challenges you to try to find your way between the two or, you know, try to... There's this threat that you're always having a joke played on you by reading too much into her stories. But I do think, I mean, here with A Chicken, I really think she is playing on the fact that Galina... I mean, you know, chickens are female. It's also female gendered. Um, In English, you would say it's. But, you know, in a lot of places, when an animal takes on more of an almost human personality or just a personality in a story... I tend to use the gender he or she, um, and uh, here I really do think, um, you know, especially in moments when when she's making this contrast between the rooster and the chicken, you know, she's stupid, timid, and free, not victorious as an escaping rooster would have been. You know, so it's like this kind of this thing that... Well, yeah, the, the, she says, like, the rooster believes in his comb. Right. Like, he takes pride in that kind of manly strutting right. you know, peacockery. Whatever right, it and I actually, it's funny, because I had wanted it um, as the cock believes in his comb, because I wanted that kind of, like, yeah. cockiness, and I think this was a moment. I mean, you know, there's so many back and forths between um, between Ben and me, but, uh, you know, because it starts with rooster and it's the same um, word in Portuguese, I think at this point he didn't want to change it, but I really like the cock believes in his comb. But I yeah, I mean, yeah, but That's you know, nice. there's like kind of like you know, and it's the man who goes and chases her down, and you know, it's like you know, the female of the species is the one that gives birth, and it's like you know, part of like what's held up, especially in you know, patriarchal societies, like the miracle of womanhood, or like you know, you're a woman because you can give birth, <laughs> like give life, but she she plays, you know, yeah. there's like a lot of irony around that. Well, uh, you even begin with that line um, where they select her and they, quote, feel up her intimate parts <laughs> right. indifferently, but they can't even tell whether she's fat or skinny. So it's the sense <laughs> that like they're going into her private places, but without really understanding anything about her physically yeah, and much less, of course, um, mentally. Like that, that she, as like you know, the story goes. Nobody could tell that she had a yearning. Like it's yeah. not they can't even f- figure out physically and mentally. It's just a, a um, way beyond them. Yeah, and so I mean, I think that's another reason, um, you know, why I think of of animals and chickens and women um, as connected in her stories because there's she kind of plays ironically on this idea of you know the woman as all body, all biology, um, the passive you know, like nature versus culture. And this is, you know, the the other story we're going to read, The Smallest Woman in the World, plays on that a lot. 
Um, and so, you know, you have these stories where it's this female figure who's supposed to be, um, you know, just lunch or just this body that you feel up or that produces an egg and all of a sudden she kind of makes a break for it or she you know she busts well, it, out of that shell and it reminds me of all those there's so many scenes yeah. of rooftop chases in america in like hollywood film and i was like they never have women you know they, it's a very male world right. that world of the rooftop chase but here we get uh the the man of the house who sometimes described as a boy i didn't quite understand yeah. that, but is is the father and then he's chasing her trying to get you know lunch there's so many moments. I mean, this was another reason why it became very difficult. It was very difficult to translate her because she uses words and you're not quite sure based on the context what they could mean. Like anseo, um, no one would ever guess she had a yearning. Very difficult word, actually. Anseo, it's, um, you know, it has to do, it could either be... Um, like anxiousness. So actually, Giovanni Pontiero's version says no one knew she felt anxious. But um, Elizabeth Bishop also translated this, and she has something more like mine that she had this desire because it's like I was an unseo. It's almost like a false friend where I think the stronger. I mean, I did a lot of thinking about what unseo could be, <laughs> but you know, the stronger meaning is this is kind of like almost like restless desire mm-hmm. or something. And I think. To me, I mean, that's another interpretive moment where you think, um, you know, there's something in her that is yearning or that is, um, you know, that wants something beyond just this fate of sitting in the corner docilely and being felt up and being lunch. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting mm-hmm. because on the one hand, there's, okay, that leads us to read this kind of as an allegory, like the woman who's not understood, has the yearning be free. But then when she achieves that, uh, there's that line where she's described as she seems so free and it's that stupid, timid and free. <laughs> so once again, we're back to this level of this chicken that it's not like this human being. It's not portrayed as a human being who has found its freedom and is glorying in it, but is still limited by uh, its timidity and its small, yeah, I mean, small brain wattage and all that. I I think that's there's there's um, I mean, I think the story is hilarious and. I think that's one thing that distinguishes the stories from the novels is that they're so much funnier as a whole and kind of, um, you know, earthier. They have this kind of sometimes like farcical or burlesque feel. And I think that's a source of of the humor in the story that the chicken goes back and forth between being something you want to identify with on a human level. You know, like she's playing with this you know, neither father nor mother, you know, alone in the world. It's like, yeah. oh, we feel sorry for this. It's like, to me, that's funny yeah. all of a sudden. Just, yeah, just no, it, and, chicken and, alone in the right, world. Right, and that's why the family has trouble. It's right. like, well, I wouldn't want to eat a human being. You know, they're not cannibals. Yeah. Uh, but at some point, the chicken just gets re- reverts in their eyes to being just a chicken. And, and, and therefore... Uh, can be eaten. It's not no longer the mother or this kind of creature that's ennobled uh, in its in its flight from being killed. You know, I, I wonder how many people read a story like a chicken and, and become vegetarians. Um, I guess it depends how funny you think that last line is, um, or whether you think it's horrible. You know, right. um, that at the very end um, we have this way that you know we see that the chicken like wants to proclaim itself and it has its moment. But on the other hand, we see that it's still that chicken. And it says, you know, it was a chicken's head, the same one designed at the start of the centuries. And it doesn't right. sh- So there is 
a change in the feeling of the chicken where because the narrator can go in the head of the chicken knows it has that yearning. Mm-hmm. But in terms of expression, you don't see anything. And um, that's why I assume the the family eats it because they don't see it. At, at some point, they stop seeing the yearning. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's so much in Clarice about, you know, people being forgetful, treacherous, violent, <laughs> or these moments where someone has this deep epiphany that seems to completely change their life. And then it kind of fades away and they move on. You know, maybe it's just a memory, but, you know, something um, like that, you know, these she has these abrupt endings that kind of seem to tie up the story neatly, but leave you, um, you know, with this sense of like that it's this unsolvable riddle. Mm-hmm. Well, one weird thing about that last sentence, I'm curious what you make of this, is that she says, mm-hmm. until one day they killed her, ate her, and years went by. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine a sense that ends and they killed her and ate her. But then ending with, and years went by, that's that, that's that kind of that weird Clarice thing, right? I mean, the, why have, um, why remark at the end of the story about all the years that have passed since they ate the chicken? I mean, I, I think of it uh, connecting to what um, I was saying earlier. I think, it's, you know, it's this one moment in this chicken's life or in the history of chickens, <laughs> you know, in which something heroic and different happens, but... Um, you know, then the rhythm of brute life, of eating, killing, eating, and, mar- you know, it just marches on. Let's go to the second of our stories, uh, from Clarice. Sure. Uh, this is The Smallest Woman in the World. The Smallest Woman in the World. In the depths of equatorial Africa, the French explorer Marcel Pretre, hunter and man of the world, came upon a pygmy tribe of surprising smallness. He was all the more surprised then when informed that an even smaller people existed beyond forests and distances. So deeper still, he plunged. In the central Congo, he indeed discovered the smallest pygmies in the world. And, like a box within a box within a box, among the smallest pygmies in the world was the smallest of the smallest pygmies in the world, obeying perhaps the need nature sometimes has to outdo herself. Amid mosquitoes and trees warm with moisture, amid the rich leaves of the laziest green, Marcel Pret came face to face with a woman who stood 18 inches tall, full-grown, black, silent. Dark as a monkey, he would inform the press, and that she lived in the top of a tree with her little consort. In the tepid wild mists, which swell the fruits early and make them taste almost intolerably sweet, she was pregnant. There she stood then, the smallest woman in the world. For an instant, in the drone of the heat, it was as if the Frenchman had unexpectedly arrived at the last conclusion. Undoubtedly, it was only because he wasn't insane that his soul neither fainted nor lost control. Sensing an immediate need for order and to give a name to whatever exists, he dubbed her Little Flower. And in order to classify her among the recognizable realities, he quickly set about collecting data on her. Her race is gradually being exterminated. Few human examples remain of this species, which if not for the cunning danger of Africa, would be a dispersed people. 
aside from disease, infectious vapors from the waters, insufficient food, and roving beasts, the greatest risk facing the scant Likualas are the savage Bantus, a threat that surrounds them in the silent air as on the morning of battle. The Bantus hunt them with nets, as they do with monkeys, and eat them. Just like that, they hunt them with nets and eat them. That tiny race of people, always retreating and retreating, eventually took up residence in the heart of Africa, where the lucky explorer would discover them. For strategic defense, they live in the tallest trees, from which the women descend to cook corn, grind cassava, and gather vegetables. The men to hunt. When a child is born, he is granted his freedom almost immediately. It's true that often the child won't enjoy this freedom for very long among wild beasts. But then it's true that, at the very least, no one will lament that for so short a life, the labor was long. For even the language the child learns is short and simple, strictly essential. The Likualas use few names, referring to things with gestures and animal sounds. In terms of spiritual advancement, they have a drum. While they dance to the sound of the drum, a little male stands guard against the Bantus, who will come from no one knows where. It was, therefore, thus, that the explorer discovered, standing there at his feet, the smallest human thing in existence. His heart beat because no emerald is as rare. Neither are the teachings of the sages of India as rare. Neither has the richest man in the world ever laid eyes on so much strange grace. Right there was a woman the gluttony of the most exquisite dream could never have imagined. That was when the explorer declared, shyly and with a delicacy of feeling of which his wife would never have judged him capable, you are little flower. At that moment, little flower scratched herself where a person doesn't scratch. The explorer, as if receiving the highest prize for chastity to which a man who had always been so idealistic dared aspire, the explorer, seasoned as he was, averted his eyes. Little Flower's photograph was published in the color supplement of the Sunday papers, where she fit life-size, wrapped in a cloth with her belly far along, her nose flat, her face black, eyes sunken, feet splayed. She resembled a dog. That Sunday, in an apartment, a woman, seeing Little Flower's picture in the open newspaper, didn't want to look a second time, because it pains me so. In another apartment, a lady felt such perverse tenderness for the African woman's smallness that, prevention being better than cure, no one should ever leave Little Flower alone with a lady's tenderness. Who knows to what darkness of love affection can lead? The lady was disturbed for a day, one might say seized with longing. Besides, it was spring, a dangerous benevolence was in the air. In another house, a five-year-old girl, seeing the picture and hearing the commentary, became alarmed. In that household of adults, this girl had up till now been the smallest of human beings. And, if that was the source of the best caresses, it was also the source of this first fear of love's tyranny. Little Flower's existence led the girl to feel, with a vagueness that only years and years later, for very different reasons, would solidify into thought led her to feel in a first flash of wisdom that misfortune has no limit. In another house, amid the rite of spring, the young bride-to-be experienced an ecstasy of compassion. Mama, look at her little picture, poor little thing. Just look how sad she is. But, said the mother, 
firm and defeated and proud, but it's the sadness of an animal, not human sadness. Oh, mamma, said the girl, discouraged. It was in another house that a clever boy had a clever idea. Mamma, what if I put that little African lady on Paulinho's bed while he's sleeping? When he wakes up, he'll be so scared, right? He'll scream when he sees her sitting on the bed. And then we could play so much with her. We could make her a toy, right? His mother was at that moment curling her hair in front of the bathroom mirror, and she recalled something a cook had told her about her time at the orphanage. Having no dolls to play with, and maternity already pulsating terribly in the hearts of those orphans, the sly little girls had concealed another girl's death from the nun. They hid the corpse in a wardrobe until the nun left and played with the dead girl, giving her baths and little snacks, punishing her just so they could kiss her afterward, consoling her. This is what the mother recalled in the bathroom, and she lowered her pendulous hands full of hairpins and considered the cruel necessity of loving. She considered the malignity of our desire to be happy, considered the ferocity with which we want to play, and how many times we will kill out of love. Then she looked at her clever son as if looking at a dangerous stranger, and she felt horror at her own soul that, more than her body, had engendered that being fit for life and happiness. That is how she looked, with careful attention and an uncomfortable pride at that boy already missing his two front teeth. Evolution, evolution in action, a tooth falling out to make way for one better for biting. I'm going to buy him a new suit, she decided, looking at him deep in thought. Obstinately, she dressed her gap-toothed son in nice clothes, obstinately wanting him to be squeaky clean, as if cleanliness would emphasize a calming superficiality, obstinately perfecting the courteous side of beauty, obstinately distancing herself and distancing him from something that ought to be dark like a monkey. Then, looking in the bathroom mirror, the mother made a deliberately refined and polite smile, placing between that face of hers with its abstract lines and little flower's crude face the insurmountable distance of millennia. But after years of practice, she knew this would be one of those Sundays on which she'd have to conceal from herself the anxiety, the dream, and millennia lost. In another house, beside a wall, they were engaged in the excited task of measuring little flowers 18 inches with the ruler. And that was where, delighted, they gasped in shock. She was even smaller than the keenest imagination could conceive. In each family member's heart arose, nostalgic, the desire to have that tiny and indomitable thing for himself, that thing spared from being eaten, that permanent source of charity. The family's eager soul wanted to devote itself. And, really, who hasn't ever wished to possess a human being for one's very own? Which, to be sure, wouldn't always be convenient. There are times when you don't want to have feelings. I bet if she lived here, it would lead to fighting, said the father, seated in his armchair, definitively turning the page of his newspaper. In this house, everything leads to fighting. There you go again, José, always pessimistic, said the mother. Mama, have you thought about how tiny her little baby would be? The eldest daughter, age 13, said ardently. The father stirred behind his newspaper. It must be the smallest black baby in the world, replied the mother, oozing with pleasure. Just imagine her serving dinner here at home, and with that enormous little belly. Enough of this chatter, the father growled. But you must admit, said the mother, unexpectedly offended, that we're talking about a rare thing. You're the one being insensitive. 
and the rare thing herself? Meanwhile, in Africa, the rare thing herself held in her heart. Who knows, maybe it was black too, since a nature that's aired once can no longer be trusted. Meanwhile, the rare thing herself harbored in her heart something rarer still, like the secret of the secret itself, a tiny child. Methodically, the explorer peered closely at the little belly of the smallest full-grown human being. In that instant, the explorer, for the first time since he'd met her, instead of feeling curiosity or exaltation or triumph or the scientific spirit, the explorer felt distress. Because the smallest woman in the world was laughing. She was laughing, warm, warm. Little Flower was delighting in life. The rare thing herself was having the ineffable sensation of not yet having been eaten. Not having been eaten was something that, at other times, gave her the agile impulse to leap from branch to branch. But in this moment of tranquility, amidst the dense leaves of the central Congo, she wasn't putting that impulse into action. And the impulse had become concentrated entirely in the smallness of the rare thing herself. And so she was laughing. It was a laugh that only one who doesn't speak laughs. That laugh, the embarrassed explorer couldn't manage to classify. And she kept enjoying her own soft laughter, she who wasn't being devoured. Not being devoured is the most perfect of feelings. Not being devoured is the secret goal of an entire life. So long as she wasn't being eaten, her bestial laughter was as delicate as joy is delicate. The explorer was confounded. Second of all, if the rare thing herself was laughing, it was because, within her smallness, a great darkness had sprung into motion. It was that the rare thing herself felt her breast warmed with what might be called love. She loved that yellow explorer. If she knew how to speak and told him she loved him, he'd puff up with vanity. Vanity that would shrivel when she added that she also loved the explorer's ring very much, and that she loved the explorer's boots very much. And when he deflated in disappointment, Little Flower wouldn't understand why. For, not in the slightest, would her love for the explorer, one might even say her profound love, because, having no other resources, she was reduced to profundity. For not in the slightest would her profound love for the explorer be devalued by the fact that she also loved his boots. There's an old mistake about the word love, and if many children have been born of this mistake, countless others have missed their only instant of being born, merely due to a susceptibility that demands you be mine, mine, that you like me and not my money. But in the humidity of the forest, there are no such cruel refinements, and love is not being eaten. Love is thinking a boot is pretty. Love is liking that rare color of a man who isn't black. Love is laughing with the love of a ring that sparkles. Little flower blinked with love and laughed, warm, tiny, pregnant, warm. The explorer tried to smile back at her without knowing exactly to what abyss his smile responded, and then got flustered as only a big man gets flustered. He pretended to adjust his explorer helmet, blushing bashfully, he turned a lovely color, his own, a greenish pink, like that of a lime at dawn. He must have been sour. It was probably while adjusting his symbolic helmet that the explorer pulled himself together, severely regained the discipline of work, and recommenced taking notes. 
He'd learned some of the few words spoken by the tribe and how to interpret their signals. He could already ask questions. Little Flower answered, yes, that it was very good to have a tree to live in, her own, her very own. For, and this she didn't say, but her eyes went so dark that they said it, for it is good to possess, good to possess, good to possess. The explorer blinked several times. Marcel Prêtre had several difficult moments with himself, but at least he kept busy by taking lots of notes. Those who didn't take notes had to deal with themselves as best they could. Because look, suddenly declared an old woman shutting the newspaper decisively, because look, all I'll say is this, God knows what he's doing. Uh, so, Katrina, you mentioned to me um, before you read that story uh, earlier that this is one of your favorite stories by Clarice. Why, why do you think that is? First of all, it's hilarious. <laughs> I I love her kind of humor. Um, you know, that's always a little bit, you know, kind of a dark humor. It's quite you know, macabre. Really perverse, yeah, right? Yeah. The grotesque. Um, and, I mean, it's so tricky. It's just... I mean, first of all, it's just a really good story, um, really compelling, but there are so many layers to it. I've I've read it countless times, and, um, you know, I still have, there's so many kind of, like, pockets of mystery still, um, but, yeah, I mean, I just, I love the way that little flower gets the last laugh at the end, and... You know, she has this laugh that only one, what is it, only one who doesn't speak um, laughs. And, you know, it's this thing that kind of topples this orderly world of this, you know, kind of heroic French explorer anthropologist, Marcel Prête. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I think, you know, it's, it's another thing I like about it is that it's not as simple as just saying, oh, you know, this is like the revenge of the woman or the revenge of the, you know, quote unquote, primitive woman over, um, you know, European civilization and rational thought or, you know, the scientific spirit. You know, that's one angle. But I think it just it gets really complex to me when you have all of these other women um, looking at Little Flower's picture in the newspaper and having this kind of wild variety of responses, you know, and and there are these moments where she talks about, um, you know, a kind of dangerous tenderness in love. And, you know, there's all this talk about, you know, love that's very um, kind it's not, of it's not, it's not It's not rom-com world of love we got here. <laughs> you know, there's a, a real, uh, you know, that there's that ending where she's mm-hmm. saying, um, you know, it is good to possess, good to possess, good to possess. I mean, it's repeated three times. And that's almost to me like the final twist of the story is that, you know, we don't want the um, Marcel Pretre mm-hmm. to possess this woman. Because right. we, don't, we, we don't like this whole col- this colonial story. It makes us very uneasy um, and, of, of a, this explorer coming in there and like taking over a territory and mm-hmm. taking over a woman. 
Right, and all these her. women and people seeing her in the newspaper and saying, oh, that poor creature. Oh, imagine her serving dinner. Mm, like, she could be well, our like little she, toy. <laughs> she could be our toy, our, yeah. our pet. Right. You know, to go back to a chicken, you know. Um, but then she also has, when she speaks back, her language is not that far away from the language of the uh, of these um, of the colonizer in some ways, and that's the kind of uh, uneasy place we're left with. Yeah, I mean that's another thing I love about it. She's not this innocent um, victim, or or even morally superior necessarily <laughs> to the colonizer. Yeah, I mean she's just um, as covetous <laughs> in a way, but you know is really like feeling it <laughs> and owning it. <laughs> well, and, and let me, let's go go back a second. To to think about how the story begins with him coming upon her. And I, I've read um, in an essay about this that uh, when they're describing Little Flower and her kind of arrangements, that Lee Spector uses the word concubino, like the, the masculine version of concubine, mm-hmm. to describe her how she lives with this man. Uh, you translated that, I think, as consort. Right. Um, what do you think is the importance of that little... You know, here she is, Spectre, inventing a word to describe um, a a world of this tribe that hasn't been known. So it it requires a new language. Why why do you think that is? Um, You know, I think think it's uh, important to put it outside of the Western European um, or, you know, kind of more like civilized idea of the family unit, you know, so it's not her spouse, it's not her husband. There's no like, legal mm-hmm. arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, you know, it's like her mates. That's, mm-hmm. you know, it could be, um, I mean, but I think it's like, it's somewhere in between. So, you know, it is, it is part of this human social structure, but, um, you know, something that's like just slightly different. And so right. I think to use a different word and use a word that's normally coded feminine, um, you know, that's why I didn't want to use concubine in English because you miss, you don't have those levers of masculine and feminine in English in the same way. So as you mentioned, there is something kind of, you know, sexual about it. He is, you know, he's her kind of mate. And then also, I think there's a subtle implication um, of a kind of matriarchal society. Well, and we hear yeah. nothing about the, the men of this society later on. It really does mm-hmm. seem focused on the smallest women of the world. Um and then, so we kind of go in there, and there's that uh, odd. We we know that their relationship between the conqueror and the smallest woman is going to be odd from the start. Mm-hmm. When uh, what is it that he um, calls her little flower? He <laughs> names her. He never seems to be curious to ask her what she's might be named in her own language, mm-hmm. um, right? Um, and then at that very moment, she scratches herself where a person doesn't scratch. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think? What was that due to the? the nature of their relationship. How do you think that sets the tone for it? I love that. And, you know, I mean, there's so many questions in this story about the limits of the human or what, you know, she's she's the smallest human, smallest woman in the world, and yet, um, you know, she's described like a monkey. She's a dog. And, you know, another woman says that's not human sadness, that's animal sadness. So there are all these, like, rejections of her being human. But, you know, there's this, it's this real, this is a kind of social moment where she, she has a different idea of, um, you know, what's appropriate and what's not. And, you know, she's also naked and pregnant. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, it's, you know, at the end, also her little pregnant belly is what throws him off, even though you know, he's kind of like measuring her and pretending, using his scientific, you know, 
knowledge gathering apparatus to really ignore the human, you know, the elements of this interaction that could be embarrassing. Or, right. And so I think that there's that, this that moment elude where... simply the, the grid and, and, the, and the rational mindset that wants to measure as yeah. a way of knowing. Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, this this moment, or with this story, I think a lot of, um, of Foucault's The Order of Things, um, or, you know, Les Mots and Les Choses. I don't know now what it's... it's it's translated as words and things. Or I think it's the order of things. Order but, you know, things. just thinking about how, you know, there's this naming and classifying function that, like you said, you know, layers this grid of knowledge over the natural world that often exceeds mm-hmm. explanation. That produces what counts as knowledge. And uh, I, I think look, Lee Spector is interested in so many aspects of human interaction with the world, with animals, with uh, trees, vegetation, with other people, all these things that can't be measured in those kind of, you know, geometric, uh, linear ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so one of the things that she's getting at here. Um, and, and then we, we, it begins a kind of a scene of um, colonialism. But then very quickly it becomes a kind of a mass-mediated scene. And we're like been to think, okay, what is, what's the function of colonialism in the media? Mm-hmm. You know, and we shift to a different plane um, what do you what do you make of the way that the the story of the smallest woman in the world reverberates in these different, like you're saying, female centered households? How do they interpret her, um, and how, how much are they like other versions of Marcel Pretz, or are they different? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you were leading there um, by moving from the the connection between scientific knowledge to, you know, the kind of media structure, and I think mediating <laughs> is a key word in that, you know, it's it's you know, looking for these treasures, uh, rarities of scientific knowledge to bring back to the Western or the civilized world, but in in a way that reinforces the superiority or, or perceived superiority of this civilization. So, you know, this woman um, who's thinking about this awful story of the orphans who, you know, keep a girl's death a secret so they can play with her like a little doll. You know, she, she suddenly, you know, kind of scared that, um, you know, there's this kind of violence, barbaric side to, you know, all humanity. And so in order to get around that, she thinks, I'm going to buy my son a suit, you know, dress him up, clothe him. She smiles at herself in the mirror to distance herself, um, you know, from what Clarice writes, little flowers, crude face, the insurmountable distance of millennia. Um so, you know, I mean, she's very terrified that this woman that is not very different from from her and her son and these other girls. It's sort of like, you know, you read this media story in the media and it kind of like tears a hole in your world. And suddenly you're brought back to these memories uh, of the uh, story that the cook told you, mm-hmm. you know, about, you know, wh- what could happen in an orphanage among girls who are, they're not evil. You know, they're just, you know, thinking, well, there's some kind of pleasure in having this dead thing, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. this girl who, might, who was alive and meant so much, but once she passes into this other stage, she just becomes an object uh, and then talks about how we kill out of love. I mean, this, yes. this is, again, the way you get to that really, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the, the emotions here that are sort of very dark, you know? So mm-hmm. we, 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 we think that we're measuring out of science. We think we're loving to love. But maybe we're loving to control and loving and measuring may not be that far apart, you know, that they're mm-hmm. they're joined in this desire for control. 
Right. And and this joy that um, Little Flower feels at the end of not being devoured. You know, that's the most perfect feeling in the world is not being devoured. Um, it, gets us back think, to the, it gets us back to the chicken, right? The chicken yeah. is, you know, the um, uh, the animal that almost gets um, humanized. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the smallest one in the world is the human that gets animalized uh, and even less, you know, turned into right. a toy and so on. Um, yeah, and then turns out to really be unsettling for all these other people. And, you know, in the way that the chicken beque- becomes queen of the household and she's the only one who doesn't know it, you know, Little Flower really, or whatever her you know name <laughs> is, she upends, you know, she really disturbs a lot of people and has no idea. She's just taking pleasure <laughs> in, you know, not being eaten or just kind of being there, you know, loving this explorer's boots. Yeah. And and here again, maybe we could end by th- thinking about the ending, which is uh, another one of these kind of s- snapping uh, endings that Clarice Lispector <laughs> gives us in her stories where, you know, we, we spent a, a while, maybe several pages, um, two and a half pages, where we're thinking about the relationship between Marcel Pretre and Little Flower and Little Flower, really in the head of Little Flower. And she's thinking about uh, how she loved him. She loves this yellow explorer, which is kind of a funny way to describe him as yellow. And um, <laughs> then she's thinking about love and how she loves him just like she loves his boots. And he might not like that, but he that that's the continuum on which she, she loves him. And then at the very end, I'll, I'll just read this again. Um, uh, kind of how it switches frames. It's, uh, Marcel Pratt had several difficult, difficult moments with himself, but at least he kept busy by taking lots of notes. Those who didn't take notes had to deal with themselves as best they could. Because look, suddenly declared an old woman shutting the newspaper decisively, because look, all I'll say is this, God knows what he's doing. What, what do you think that means? I mean, we kind of go out of that frame of the explorer knowing what he's doing, supposedly, although... We think he, we get a sense he really doesn't. Mm-hmm. To that old woman who shuts the newspaper saying, well, God knows what he's doing. Right. I mean, I love that. And it's it's this action that's echoing what happens in the story. She just shuts the newspaper, like, stop overthinking it. It's, you know, God knows what he's doing. <laughs> Don't question it. Um, and one of the most intriguing parts about the ending is this colon that appears before the last paragraph. Um, so it says, those who didn't take notes had to deal with themselves as best they could, colon, because look, then we get to the old woman saying, God knows what he's doing, and she yeah. shuts the newspaper. And, and you, you mentioned to me that the other translator took out the colon because I guess he found it one of Clarice's strangenesses. Right. And so you restored so, it. Yeah, so actually, Elizabeth Bishop, um, the poet, she only translated or she only published uh, translations of three stories, and a chicken was one of them, or a hen in her version, and she also translated this story. So she leaves um, the colon in. Actually, as a side note, she takes a line from this, retreating and always retreating, um, and it shows up in her poem, Brazil, January 1st, uh, 1502, that's about these maddening little women retreating, mm. always retreating. So, mm. yeah, it's an it's an interesting um moment that connects the two writers. Um, but yeah, Giovanni Pontiro, who I think, you know, had a less sensitive touch, he just, anytime there was an odd bit of punctuation or too many commas, he just took them out. So, um, you know, there are all these, there's another kind of mysterious colon in the story, and he just turns it into a period. 
And when I was going over edits of the story, I sent it to a friend um, who knows the Pontiero version, and she speaks Portuguese, and she got tripped up by the colon also. And she said, um, what's that colon doing there? You know, if this old woman is one of those who didn't take notes and had to deal with themselves as best they could, then yes, but I don't see it. So, you know, maybe it should just be a period. And I thought, you know, kind of like God knows what he's doing. It's like, Claudius, he knows what she's doing. <laughs> like, you might not understand. But, you know, I'd, I had never, in like the countless times I've read this story, I had never noticed that colon. And all of a sudden, I couldn't stop looking at it. And I and I thought, okay, well, you know, colon, it sets up this anal- analogical relationship. And it just completely um, opened up the ending for me, which I always thought was kind of like a little bit deflating. And I realized that, you know, it's creating this relationship between Marcel Prêtre and these, you know, people who deal with the unknown um, and kind of find their balance again when confronted with, you know, nature's mysteries by taking lots of notes and classifying and naming, you know, you are a little flower. And now that you've got this like, weird and fantasizing little girl's name, <laughs> like super feminine, little mm. flower, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I, you, can, I can contain you, you, you scratching yourself in your privates or whatever, <laughs> you know, being naked in front of me, like, that's not, that's okay. <laughs> you laughing in this crazy way, that's okay, because I'm just going to take some notes. And I realized that in the end, it's also this woman reading a newspaper and, you know, chalking it up to God, you know, the mysteries of the universe. It's just, you know, God, he knows what he's doing. And so for me, and suddenly it became kind of put the story into relief um, in thinking about how different people or aspects of society deal with um, what's unsettling about the unknown. You know, you have religion. God knows what he's doing. You have the newspapers, you know, culture. We write ourselves out of the predicament of of um, the unsettling. And then you have science. So. And, you know, there are all these things, these threads that I had seen in the story before, but they had never been um, tied together so neatly just by one bit of punctuation. <laughs> well, and what the punctuation does, I mean, we we would yeah. say that, okay, this is the old woman is a woman who doesn't take notes, mm-hmm. right? Right, we, she's we, a literate. Not, not, not a literate. Well, no, but, but we know. understand that, and she's closing it. But what's, <laughs> yeah, I think, more interesting about the colon is that it says that those who didn't take notes had to deal with themselves as best they could. Right. So her best way of dealing with them herself is to shut the newspaper <laughs> and to say it's God. He knows what he's doing. Right. And it's it's kind of like that's we're all in this quest uh, to deal with ourselves as best we can. And that quest takes so many strange forms and it even takes the form of being closed-minded. You know, it's it's a really it's almost a paradox. Yeah, or just not end. overthinking. I mean, you know, these stories are full of people having one crisis after another having these, you know, really intense life moments. And sometimes you have these moments where Clarice says, yeah, just shut the door, just shut it down. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, don't overthink it. And and yet, uh, so she shuts the door on that person, but she leaves us with a conundrum through, say, the colon, so that we have to keep uh, interpreting why people are shutting the door. Yes, she's perverse that way. Well, why don't we end on that note of perversity? Um, Thank you, Katrina Dotson, for talking with me today about the wonderful and uncanny world of Clarice Lispector. My pleasure. Uh, Thanks also go out to Gina Pollock, co-producer of Chapter and Verse, and to the UC Berkeley Townsend Center for the Humanities, which has provided funding for the show. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at ChapterVersePod or to check out our website at www.chapterversepod.com where you can find other episodes of the show 
and we'll let Caetano Veloso take you out of the show with his song Clarice. Fez penitência, três novenas. 